<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Well, baseball is back. Well, it's spring training, but still, it is baseball. And for those of us who love it, we have been waiting all winter long. And as you probably know, I have uh, another career as a baseball announcer. I was the announcer for the Baltimore Orioles, Seattle Mariners, San Diego Padres, did Dodger talk for eight years in Los Angeles. And so I I thought, even though I don't usually talk about baseball on this podcast, that I would take this one episode and devote it to the grand old game. And instead of just talking, uh, I brought in Arlen Peters, did this a number of months ago to just ask me questions about my career. And so he's going to interview me about my baseball life. That's this week on Hollywood and Levine. So, Ken, we have talked about your uh, your uh, history in uh, writing in the sitcom world, and you have reached at that point where you decided to make a little change you were up there at the top you you know there's cheers there's uh there's mash there's frazier you had really accomplished a lot writing and directing in sitcoms and you'd think that at that point you could put it on cruise control you're 35 years old and you say i want to be a baseball announcer what's that all about (laughs) well uh frazier came later uh in the timeline but you know, I was 35, is midlife crisis. I didn't want to get a tattoo. I didn't want to have an affair. And uh, I don't like driving fast cars. So this was the only thing left to me. But the truth is, I um, always wanted to be a baseball announcer. From the time I was eight years old and the Dodgers first came to Los Angeles and I heard Vin Scully. You know, when you're a kid and you dream of being a professional athlete, professional ball player, and for most people, there comes that day of reckoning when you realize you just don't have the skills to be a professional ball player. For me, I was eight (laughs) when that happened. I mean, literally, I was just terrible. And I had like bad depth reception and lazy fly balls would land over my head and I couldn't hit worth a damn. Basketball at least, okay, that's a big ball. I can I can see that. Um but uh I loved the idea that as an announcer, in a way you're playing the game. In a way you are involved in every pitch, in every play. And you got to travel around with the team. And when you're a kid and you've lived in one place your entire life, the idea of going to glamorous spots like Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, wow, Milwaukee. And and you don't have to pay for it. It's like they fly you. To Milwaukee, and it's you get unbelievable. To, you get to hang out with ball players, professional you get ball to players. Hang out with professional ball players, and never being one who really liked gym 
It's like, well, I don't have to get into any uniforms. <laughs> you know, I don't have to run around and, and do laps. I'd sit in the press box and you watch pitchers before batting practice even at like 3.30 in the afternoon and they're running around the warning track. They're getting in there running and it's like, Ugh, oh God, uh, glad I don't have to do that anymore. So it seemed a very glamorous life to me. And, you know, I had the greatest role model ever in Vin Scully, which is good and bad. The good is he's very inspiring. And the bad is you can never be as good as that, (laughs) you know. And the other bad is that you're just going to imitate him because that's who you hear in your head. Uh, But So I always wanted to be a baseball announcer from the time I was eight years old. And then I moved on. I got interested in radio, interested in comedy. I found I impressed girls a lot more with my sense of humor than my possible ability to read pitches. (laughs) <laughs> so I uh, I gravitated towards Top 40 Radio, where I could be funny, and, uh, and was in the back of my mind always thinking about writing and uh, always wondered what that would be like. And eventually I got tired of bouncing around the country playing kung fu fighting, fans of this podcast and my blog have probably heard this story, so I'm going to do a very condensed version. And um, and I reached a point in 1974 where I was at a radio station in San Diego, KSEA, and the rating book came out a week before Christmas, and we did not fare well, and we were all fired. The station decided to change formats, and we were all fired out the door that day. Last thing I said on the air on that radio station was see you tomorrow. And, uh, and I came to a crossroads and I, okay, I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to keep playing Kung Fu fighting. So my two options are go to LA and try to become a television writer, despite the fact that there are long odds to that. Or, make a tape and try to get a job as a minor league baseball announcer and pursue that. And I chose writing because I just didn't want to move anymore. That in radio, I would have to bounce around from Detroit to San Francisco to San Diego, up to LA, back to San Diego. And I thought, you know, even if I'm a writer on a show, and God forbid I get fired, I don't have to move. (laughs) The next job is going to also be in Los Angeles. So that was really the, the motivation as to why I became a writer, as to why I pursued writing, rather, as opposed to pursuing baseball announcing back in 1974. But it was always kind of in the back of my mind, as something that I wanted to do. So you climbed the writing mountain. Yes. Very successful at that. What Knock happened? on wood or whatever. What, yeah. what, what happened? That day you woke up and a little switch flipped and something in your head said, time to be a baseball announcer. Well, two things happened. And there was that one actual day. The first thing is that David and I, my partner David Isaacs, we had done a series for Mary Tyler Moore. And for a variety of reasons I won't get into here, it was a very difficult year. And I came to the end of that year, and it was one of those, is that all there is? Because you're right. I had been very successful. I'd been on MASH. I'd been on Cheers. I'd won an Emmy. I created a show for the queen of television. And I'm thinking to myself, is that all there is? 
That's number one. And then number two is I went to a Dodger Giant game around that time. And a young guy who I knew growing up did take the path of wanting to become a baseball announcer. And he bounced around in the minors for a few years. He did Albuquerque, which was the Dodgers AAA Farm Club for several years. And he got a job with the San Francisco Giants. His name is David Glass. And he was a giant announcer for a number of years in the 80s. And I remember going to a Dodger game. And we were going to get together afterwards, get some drinks. But I was sitting in the stands and I'm looking up at the press box. And there's David Glass (laughs) (laughs) sitting there with a microphone And he is a Major League Baseball announcer. And in the booth, just to his right, there's Vin Scully. (laughs) He's hanging out with, with Vin Scully. And at that point, I thought, you know what? If I don't pursue this now, I never will. And at the time, I had a mutual friend named Steve Leon, who had been a TV executive. We first worked together when we had a pilot at NBC and he was one of the executives, young guy, about my age. And he too had expressed interest in becoming a sportscaster. So we talked and I said, let's go to Dodger Stadium and bring tape recorders and try announcing a game, see how that goes. He said, okay. What we thought we would do is go to the upper deck. Dodger Stadium is kind of a wedding cake design. And we thought, let's go to the upper deck, general admission. The vantage point isn't that great, but you're right over home plate. But the point is that the seats were not reserved. So if somebody is spending big money for a field box seat, and it's the only time he goes to a Dodger game that year, he doesn't want some idiot sitting next to him going, there's a drive to deep left field. (laughs) But if you're in the upper deck and you don't like what we're doing, then you just get up and move uh, a row or few seats, whatever. So the two of us sat there in like the last row for the first game. And the players were just ants, just ants. And we traded off innings. And I remember it was a Dodger-Cincinnati Reds game. (laughs) And uh, so we call this game. Here's how bad we were. When the game was over, an usher came down and offered to arrange a taxi for us to go home. That he thought, we were probably so fucking drunk. <laughs> was he? By the way, was he listening in on your? I guess. Play? I guess he heard or something. He's like, uh, these guys. These guys must be smashed. What the fuck are they doing? We enjoyed it. We went back uh, a couple more times. It's interesting that first game, the Dodgers lost to Chris Welch of the Reds, oh. one to nothing, and. I since have become friends with Chris Welch, who is the uh, analyst for the the Reds. So I've mentioned this Small story. World. Yeah, yeah. And we've actually become friends. And he says, you have that tape? I said, I do. You're never going to hear it. <laughs> You're never going to hear it. After a couple of times, we said, well, why don't we each get tape recorders and sit out? So we don't have to do four and a half innings. We can do all nine innings. So that's what we did. And then it became a little more elaborate. We would go out like once a week at first. And instead of sitting in the back row, we would sit in the front row. We would sit a couple of aisles away from each other so we couldn't hear each other. And at first we had like a little tape recorder and like a handheld mic and we're just doing it. Well, I wanted it to sound professional. I wanted to be able to record a tape that sound sounded like 
a real broadcast. Because this is eventually would be your audition. Eventually, yeah, exactly. I thought to myself, you know what? I would love just for the experience to announce baseball somewhere in the minor leagues, just to have the experience of what it is like to be with a team. And yeah, I'm not going to be traveling to Cincinnati. I'm going to be traveling to Mobile, Alabama and Montgomery, Alabama. But on, on a bus. On a bus uh, in the middle of the night for 12 hours. Uh, you know, but still, I, I wanted that experience. So I went out and I bought a much better tape recorder. I bought a portable Marantz unit, which was professional. I went and got headset microphones, the kind you see on TV. I bought a small battery-operated mixer, and I bought a second microphone that I could drape over the front railing (laughs) to serve as my crowd mic. You had a mobile studio. I had a mobile studio. And I'm sitting there in the front row, and what I would do for the defense is I would take three-by-five cards, and I would write out where all the players were on the field. So if there's a fly ball to right... You know, I didn't have to go, oh, God, so who is the Cincinnati Reds right fielder? It could just say there's a fly ball to right and glance down and go Arlen Peters over to his right and makes the catch for the out. So I had those taped. And that was like my my broadcast studio. (laughs) I would buy two seats. Usually there was like 250 or 350 at the time. For general admission one for seats. yourself, one for the one studio. For my, yeah, exactly, <laughs> one for the equipment. So I had the equipment on the next chair and I had the crowd mic draped over. And again, I thought, all right, well, fans are not going to like this, so they will avoid me. But what happened was there were a lot of regulars who would come out night after night and they kind of gravitated towards me and also... Steve, he had his regulars on the other side. (laughs) And they would sit around, and it was, you know, status-conscious L.A. to go to a Dodger game and have your own announcer, right? Uh, But I would buy them all a beer. There would be like five of these guys, and I'd buy them all a beer. And they would bring binoculars, and they would watch the bullpens, and they would like hand me notes as, to, as to who's you had spotters. exactly as to who's warming up, <laughs> and you know they they would point like oh you, you got a, a pinch runner going over there to first base and you know so you're right I I had my own spotters which you needed up there it was really funny because you're calling these pitches and it's supposed to be radio so people don't know where the hell you're sitting. And I would say, oh, he's got that good late break on that palm ball. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking palm ball. (laughs) Right. You know, Um, I I asked the Dodgers, is there a way I could get an empty booth? And they said no, but they would let me come into the press box and get the notes, get the game notes. So I could do that like an hour before the game. Now, of course, everything is on the Internet. You can do all your preparation at home. You could just bring your iPad and look it up on the fly. But at the time, no, I, I, I would get the notes and then I would hike my way up to my spot. There were some people that were going like, oh, who are you broadcasting for? Who are you broadcasting? And I would, I would always say, uh, and you'll appreciate this, having worked there for so many years, I would say, uh, this is CBS radio. <laughs> <laughs> this is CBS national radio. They, they don't have any room in the press box. So we just have a guy with a cassette recorder. That's CBS radio. <laughs> but... Um, I would do game after game. Steve and I would get together after the game. We would go out, get something to eat, like at the pantry, which I recommend for you people in L.A. who are looking for late-night dining. 
And we would talk about certain innings, and then we would play our play-by-play of that inning. And we would kind of compare what we thought we did right, what we thought the other person did right, that we missed, that type of thing. So we were sort of learning as we went along and, and critiquing. And interestingly, during that period, I consciously avoided listening to Vin Scully because I just knew if I had Scully's voice in my head that I was going to slip into, and the one, two pitches low, <laughs> Hershiser into the wind. You know, I just, I didn't want to sound like Vin Scully. I wanted to be as good as Vin Scully and as smart as Vin Scully and as colorful and as descriptive uh, and as great a storyteller as Vin Scully, but I didn't want to be Vin Scully. So we did this for two seasons, and it got to the point where we were each coming out two, three, four nights, and then we would go to Anaheim, and we would sit up in Anaheim Stadium and call games. We did this for two years. Oh, my God. And then in 1986, the Angels were in the playoffs. They were playing the Boston Red Sox. It was the famous series where Henderson hit the home run and turned the whole series around. But I went to game one and game two. I only bought one seat for probably $35. And at the time, Anaheim Stadium was completely enclosed. So it was loud. It was so loud that the two people sitting on either side of me could not hear me. (laughs) That's how loud it was. And fortunately, since I had my headset microphone, I could hear in my head what it sounded like. So I could hear me loud enough that I didn't feel compelled to shout over the crowd. So I make this tape, and I say to my wife, wouldn't it be fun to spend a bucolic summer (laughs) somewhere calling baseball? And I gave her a list, because at the time I thought, well, maybe at some point I'll be a movie director, and we'll have to go down to the jungle of Brazil for three months and live in a tent. But wouldn't it be nice just to spend a summer um, in some lovely spot in the United States? And I gave her a list of all the minor league cities, like about 130, 140 cities at the time. Um, Goddamn commissioner is trying to cut down on minor league baseball. But... I gave her the list and I said, you check off the places that you wouldn't mind spending a summer and those are the only places I will send my tape. And she checked off like 20. I was hoping she would check off like 65, but she checked off 20. And I said, okay. I sent out 20 tapes and that was it. And I got three offers. I got an offer from... Eugene, Oregon, which is in the Northwest League, but that's a shorter league. That's like 70 games. Ironically, Vero Beach in the Florida League, Vero Beach being the The Dodgers, Dodgers. right? And Syracuse, which was AAA. They were the Toronto Blue Jays AAA affiliate. And I chose Syracuse because it's AAA. It's It's a higher level. And the owner of the team, gentleman by the name of Tex Simone, called to offer me the job. And my wife answered, and he said, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah. He said, is, is this for real? <laughs> he knew your background at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I had listed, you know, my radio and um, TV credits. 
And by that time, I had been a major market disc jockey, and I'd also been a major market talk show host. So I certainly had the radio experience. And she said, yeah. (laughs) And he said, well, okay, we would like to offer him the job. So I go to Syracuse, and I was very fortunate that I had a partner named Dan Horde. Dan had done it a couple of years by himself, and it's a grind if you're doing every game, you know, nine innings, home and away, extra innings, rain delays, and it's just you. It really is a grind. So he welcomed me as a partner. It wasn't like I was foisted upon him. And when I was offered the job and I was told that I would be working with their current guy, Dan Horde, and I said, for me to do this, to uproot my life, I want to be able to at least do half a game. I don't have to be the number one guy. I don't have to do seven innings, but I need to at least do half of the innings. And... So when they offered me the job and they explained that I would be partnering with Dan, I said, can I have his number? And I called Dan and I introduced myself. And I said, look, here's the situation. And I laid it out just the way I laid it out for you. I said, but if you're uncomfortable with that, I'm just going to pass and say, no, this isn't really right for me. You won't be involved. It's not like, you know, you killed it or anything like that. Uh, But you're going to be my partner. You're going to be the guy I spend the entire summer with. If you're not comfortable with me, then I don't need this aggravation and you don't need this aggravation. And Dan was great and said, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We had so much fun that year. Dan has since gone on, and he's the radio voice of the Cincinnati Bengals, and he's the longtime radio voice of the University of Cincinnati Bearcats. And this year, I'm so proud of him, this year he was just named the Ohio Sportscaster of the Year. Ah, Yeah, yeah, very proud of him. So we had a great time, and at that particular juncture in my career, it's now 1988, there's a Writers Guild strike. The Writers Guild strike begins a week before the season, and it ends a week before the end of the season. (laughs) (laughs) So... I am the highest paid writer in America making $1,200 a month. That's what they paid. Wow. That's what they paid. I said, here's what I want. I said, I, I have two contingencies. I don't care necessarily about the money. And you get $12 a day meal money. I said, I want my own hotel room. I'm at an age where I don't want to be sharing my hotel room with some 19-year-old, you know, jock. Uh, And I said, and the other thing I want is a car. You know, if you can arrange a car. And they said, fine, on both of those. And for the car, they went to a local car dealer and made some arrangement where they would give them some ads on the broadcast for use of a car. And they gave me a car, but the car had like a big sign on the side of the car for, you know, Renmar Chevrolet. (laughs) But you had a car. I had a car. That's what I drove around in. Friends of mine would come to Syracuse, writer friends who were on the East Coast, and they would come up to see me in Syracuse, and they would die laughing looking at my Renmar (laughs) Chevrolet car. Now that brings up a question here. Here you are now doing Syracuse minor league baseball. Right. What did your Hollywood friends have to say? Did any come and visit you? Yes, a couple did. My partner David came and a couple of other friends did along the way. 
Most of them thought I was nuts. Most of them thought I was completely out of my mind. And it's interesting because when I became a major league baseball announcer, all of a sudden people were going, oh, well, he, he got this job because of his TV credits. And I would say to them, I spent three years in the minor leagues, long bus rides and Syracuse. The first month, it didn't get up to 40 <laughs> at any time. So you're sitting there, you can't even hold a pencil with your glove. It's so cold. You think I'm going to do that for three years to help perfect my comedy career? I was in the trenches learning how to be a baseball announcer. But you did say it was fun. It was fun. It was great fun. But there were times when it was very tiring. You know, you'd finish a game on the road. And it would be one of those marathon extra inning games that would end at 1 o'clock in the morning. So you get to your hotel at 2.30. And you're supposed to fly to Des Moines the next day. And there's very few off days in the minor leagues. And one of the rules that the league had was if it was a travel day and you were flying, you had to take the first available flight during the day. Okay, because in case something happened to that flight, you could catch a later one. But if there's only three flights and you're on the later flight and it's canceled for whatever reason. No game. No game. You can't get there. Most of these flights, like everybody in the league traveled on U.S. Air. They probably got some kind of deal. Every flight was like 6 in the morning, 6.10, 6.05. You fly to Pittsburgh, which is their hub. You sit in Pittsburgh for an hour and a half, and then you get on a plane and you go to Des Moines. That's how you travel from Rochester to Des Moines. But you get to the hotel at 2.30 in the morning, and you have to be down in the lobby, packed and ready to go at 5. Doesn't even pay to sleep, does it? Doesn't pay pay to sleep. So then... You go out to the airport, you're sitting around, you fly to Pittsburgh, you sit around Pittsburgh for an hour and a half, you get your plane, you fly to Des Moines, get a bus or shuttle buses, takes you to the hotel, you get to the hotel, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, the rooms aren't ready. (laughs) Okay. Rooms aren't going to be ready until like 2 o'clock. What are you going to do? You're in Des Moines and you're in a Holiday Inn in the middle of fucking nowhere. So you're sitting in the lobby for three hours and then you finally get into your room at 2 o'clock and at 3.30 you have to go out to the ballpark and do a game. And this was not really unusual And interestingly, my partner David went on a road trip with me. And it wasn't even that bad a trip. It was like Columbus and Toledo and back. And he said by the end of the road trip, he was exhausted. (laughs) He was absolutely exhausted. And like everything else, you just get your sea legs and you just prepare for the fact that During the course of a season, and this includes the big leagues too, during the course of a season, you're going to have flights that are canceled. You're going to have mechanical problems with planes. You're going to have 15-hour games. You're going to need a fuel stop, and you're going to have to land in the middle of the night in Fargo, North Dakota. But through the course of of a year, you just got to roll with it. It's just part of the grind. Now, was there a time when you said to yourself, gee, I could be on a nice, comfortable sound stage right now with a beautiful uh, uh, craft services spread laid out? Yes. Uh, 
sitting in the lobby in Des Moines, <laughs> <laughs> certainly. Um, here's, here was my fear. When I would do games at Dodger Stadium and Anaheim Stadium, like I said, I would do three, four a week. If I had a cold one night, then I bagged it. Or if I had a chance to go to a party or something else, it's like, you know, no one's paying me, no one's forcing me to go, so I I wouldn't go. And I'm sitting there in the press box in Syracuse and it's opening day. And the first time this thought hit me, you'd think it would occur to me beforehand, but no. I'm saying to myself, what if after two weeks I decide, you know, I don't really like this and I have 144 more games to go. <laughs> like, oh my God, it's going to be like boot camp revisited. Well, not only did that not happen, but by the end of the season, I was so depressed that it was coming to an end. And that's when I knew. People say to me, how can you sit there and watch game after game after game when you're doing a big league schedule, you're doing like 20 to 30 spring training games and a full season. That's like 190 games a year. And if you love baseball and you just consider every game to be in and of itself, I could do baseball games all year long. It really doesn't matter. Um, But now that I'm out of it, I'll watch a game on TV. And if the Dodgers are down five to nothing, I go, okay, this game's over. And I turn it off. (laughs) Well, so you say you did three years paying your dues in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the jump is to the major leagues. What... What you had your experience, again, you paid your dues. Right. At some point you said, okay, enough with the minor leagues. It's time to, to do this. What, what happens to get you up? Well, I had sent tapes after my first year to every big league club. And I figured, well, this is going to be nice. I'm going to have rejection letters on Pittsburgh Pirates stationery and everything. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. You know, I would get these form letters. Thank you. There's no openings. We'll keep your tape on file, yada, yada. I learned that even though you're in the minors and you're doing 144 games a year, that it makes a better impression if you send a big league tape, a tape from a big league game. Because there's a better crowd, there's players that people have heard of, and what you want traditionally is a tape of an exciting inning, like a 10-minute inning where there's home runs and doubles and double steals and things like that, brawls, whatever. (laughs) So by this point, uh, I knew people with the Angels, And they let me use a booth in the then football press box because the Rams were still at Anaheim Stadium. So the football press box is down the left field line, like near the foul pole. But I had my own booth. And again, if I called a fastball and it was a slider, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? So I did some games, and I remember there was like one inning that I thought was promising. They were playing the Minnesota Twins. And then the Baltimore Orioles came into Anaheim. And I went to the baseball press box because I had the pass. And I introduced myself to John Miller, who was the voice of the Orioles. And I said, would you listen to my tape and critique it for me? 
And he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> Unbelievable voice. And then like a month or two after the season, yeah, it was like beginning of November. I'm in the writing room at Cheers and assistant ducks her head in and says to me, John Miller is on the phone. And I'm thinking, John Miller, the head of publicity for NBC? What, what does he want with me? <laughs> so I go and I take the call. And it's like, hi, Ken. And I'm like, oh, that John Miller. <laughs> well, he'd gotten around to listening to my tape and he loved it and thought I sounded great. And he said, we have an opening here in Baltimore. Wow. That our number two guy, Joe Angel, has left to join the Yankees. Would you be interested? Yeah. Wow. And he said, okay, call Jeff Bochum at WBAL Radio and introduce yourself. So I called Jeff Bochum and he says, yeah, John, John mentioned you and is going to give me your tape. And he said, send me three innings, three continuous innings where nothing happens. <laughs> where it's just balls and strikes and ground outs and walks and nothing happens. And I said, well, I have that, but I would like have to dip back it would be a, a minor league game at the time I was with Tidewater. And he said, that's fine. So I sent that off to him. And a couple of weeks later, he called and said, okay, you're a finalist. We'd like to fly you into Baltimore to meet with us and to meet with John. So my wife and I flew. This was the weekend before Thanksgiving. Baltimore was, <laughs> it was like snow and desolate, you know, winter it's bleak bleak in baltimore and um so i met with jeff had dinner with him and john and then they put the two of us in a room together and just had us like you and i are talking now just talking baseball or see what, what the chemistry was. just sort of see what the chemistry is like <clears throat> and i'm thinking okay this is this is just going to kill me i'll i'll do this but I'm just shooting myself in the foot because he has the world's most magnificent voice <laughs> and, and like I'm Minnie Mouse, you know. Anyway, we chatted and we did our thing and uh, Jeff said, okay, we're going to make our decision in about a week. We'll be in touch. Week went by, two weeks went by, mm -hmm. Nothing. You know, you leave Baltimore then thinking, man, okay. You know, at first you're going, ah, this is a lark. You know, they're never going to hire me. Now you're going, hey, I could win this thing. And um, and then like two weeks. And by then I'm thinking, okay, they hired somebody else. They're in negotiations with someone else, whatever. I get a call from Jeff offering me the job. And that was it. That was my, my first job in Baltimore. And... Um, from there, so I did a year of Baltimore, and they wanted to sign me to a three-year deal, which was very nice. And they had one stipulation, and that was that I moved to Baltimore, mm. which is not an unreasonable request. Be there in the winter, be there for banquets, be there for station functions, that sort of thing. John Miller, I take it, was living in Baltimore. He was living in Baltimore, <clears throat> yes, absolutely. At the time... I was still on Cheers, and I still had a very viable TV career. I was making 90% of my income in Los Angeles. I couldn't give all of that up to move to Baltimore. So I reluctantly said I can't do it. I go back home, and I'm home for like a couple of months, and I get a call from Dave Niehaus, who was the announcer for the Seattle Mariners. There was a point in the season where the Mariners were going to open a homestand for us. They got to Baltimore early, 
we were still on the road. We were in Kansas City that night. We were going to fly home after the game. And Dave was listening to a transistor radio on the team bus going to the hotel. And he was listening to me call the game. I didn't know this at the time. And he came in the next night and said, I listened to you last night. You're really good. And I was very flattered. And, and I had known Dave briefly when we were both at KMPC. I was, going, I was wondering yeah. if he knew you from Yeah, me. he knew me from KMPC. But I thought, uh, first of all, how generous of him. Second of all, probably 80% of that is the fact that he did know me and he's being kind. But he calls the house and says, we have an opening with the Mariners. Our number two guy is going off to Detroit. And so, long story short, that's how I wound up in Seattle. I was with Seattle for three years. And then San Diego, the way that came about, the lead announcer for the Padres, Jerry Coleman, used to announce for CBS Radio. And he would do the Saturday afternoon CBS Radio Game of the Week. So the Padres needed somebody to do weekends. And at the time, the president of the club was Larry Lacchino, who had been president of the Orioles when I was there. And Larry said, well, if you're looking for a good announcer, this guy we had in Baltimore was very good. And I know he's like a TV comedy writer. Why don't you go after him? So they came after me and said, here's what we want every weekend. So half the time you'll just drive down to San Diego and the other half you'll get on an airplane and you'll meet the team wherever they are. And I thought, this is great because I can really pursue my TV career and my announcing career. And I thought, this is, I'll keep this job for 30 years. This is the greatest job ever. <laughs> and I worked with great partners. Uh, Ted Leitner was fantastic. Uh, Bob Chandler and Jerry from time to time. And um, then three years later, CBS Radio lost the rights. So Jerry was back full time and they didn't need me anymore. You didn't have a chance to talk much at all here <laughs> in this. Well, no, I'm just leading. No, no. Yeah. See, in a, a good interview, the interviewer should pose a few questions and then be quiet and let the subject talk. Okay. Well, this is going to be a long uh, podcast. So last question. You get one last, last question before the audience is saying, enough! <laughs> what did you learn from the world of baseball announcing that you were able to put to use in the creative world of writing and television and sitcoms and directing and all of that? I would say watching people under pressure and how they dealt with the pressure. Some handled it with tremendous grace. Others, not so. I think... People say, so really, what's the difference between comedy writing and being a baseball announcer? I said, I can't change the ending <laughs> of, a, of a baseball game. I can go back and rewrite the ending of a TV show to make it fit the way I want it to, or to have a happy ending or whatever. But in baseball, it's true drama. These people are playing a very difficult game where even the best players, the best hitters, fail 70% of the time. And so to see how they deal with it on a day-by-day -day basis, and it really is following a, a saga to go through a season to see the ups and downs and the, you know, emotional highs and lows and having to deal with all of that. Um, it's like a, a daily soap opera. And I've always maintained, you know, there are 
announcers. There's some ESPN guys and even Bob Costas, who I love. But I maintain if you are going to be a major league baseball announcer on television, a national play-by-play announcer, you have to have experience calling at least one full season of baseball. Joe Buck called minor league baseball. I first met Joe Buck in 1989 when I was in Tidewater and he was in Louisville. He spent time in the minors and then he spent many years with the St. Louis Cardinals. So when you're watching Joe Buck calling a game and something unusual happens and Joe is right on it, it's because he saw that play in 1991 (laughs) in a game against Pittsburgh and he saw that play seven years later in a game against Cleveland. And so he's right on it. And you're watching at home, and you just expect the announcer to know what's going on. It's very, very difficult. And to be able to have that knowledge requires experience. And I can tell the difference when I listen to a broadcast. You know, Al Michaels, he's not calling baseball anymore, but he called the Giants for years. And... There is that experience in his voice. And when he was calling World Series games for ABC, there is a a confidence and there is a level of comfort. And I think that's one of the reasons why Al Michaels is so revered. When you listen to him, you know that there is this comfort level, this guy who, who knows the game backwards and forwards. He's not trying to impress you. He's letting the game just come to him and react to it. And that comes from experience. So that's the <laughs> long, short answer to your question. Arlen, thank you very much for my, my uh, saying pleasure. five words here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think it was about 12 words. I count. Yeah, well, I, I, I appreciate it. Well, you're getting paid by the words. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Man, I never shut up, do I? Well, that will do it, finally, for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. By the way, Arlen Peters is also a terrific speaker, and if you want to hire him, he's got uh, great stories of interviewing celebrities and everything. You can get in touch with him by going to arlenp at roadrunner.com. That's arlenp at roadrunner.com. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get a hold of me, you can just uh, email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'd appreciate a five-star review, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Back next week with more. Thank you for listening. Bye. Hollywood and Levine.